Welcome to the Grow Bold with Disability podcast, brought to you by Ferros Care, a podcast dedicated to smashing stereotypes and talking about the things people with disability care about most, to help us live bolder, healthier, better connected lives. I'm journalist Pete Timms. And I'm Tristan Peters. I work for Disability Service Directory Clickability and am a wheelchair user living with spinal muscular atrophy. Today's episode of Grow Bold with Disability is growing bold in a world of domestic violence. And our guest is Carney Liddell, a Paralympian, disabled and diversity specialist. She's also a clinical social worker and a member of the Queensland Premier's Domestic and Family Violence Implementation Council. Now, in this episode, we'll hear about the disturbing statistics facing the disability community when it comes to domestic violence and family violence and what needs to be done to solve this issue. Carney Liddell, welcome to Grow Bowl with Disability. Thanks, guys. Happy to be here. It's great to have you. So, Carney, domestic and family violence in the disability community happens to one in two people over the age of 15 compared to just one in three for those without disability. Why do you think that is? Oh, look, Tristan, there's a whole lot of reasons and factors, intersectionalities that happen, I guess, when it comes to domestic and family violence. As we know, especially right now in Australia, we're all grieving and reeling, I'd say, um, by the really haunting story of Hannah Baxter being murdered um, and her three little babies um, by her ex-husband. And I guess for when it comes to disability, I've been um, very privileged to speak with um I guess, survivors or or victims of domestic and family violence with disabilities and without. And I guess one of the main contributing factors for a woman with a disability um, experiencing domestic and family violence is the fact that it's so hard for us to gain and keep employment in this country. We're one of the worst countries in the Western world, which I absolutely despise saying as a proud Paralympian. And, you know, we're so good at sport with disabilities, but then we're weirdly not good at employing people with disabilities, which I I find odd because if I can compete at the Paralympic Games with a muscle-wasting disease, you know, do the most physical thing, why can't I be a social worker or a lawyer or a journo, you know, just because I'm missing some muscle? So it's a really weird thing that we see in this country that we can't easily access or keep um, productive, good employment. Um, and I guess that contributes heavily to the fact that we find ourselves in toxic environments where we can't leave because to be able to leave a toxic family or a domestic environment, you have to be able to afford to leave. You have to be able to mm. pay for shelter, food and all those things. And I guess if you can't do that, it, it sort of makes sense, doesn't it, that we've got such an alarming higher rate of DV in our beautiful community. Carney, this also comes back to the base level, which is education as well. There's only 16% of all women with disability are likely to have a secondary education. Why is that? Yeah, that's hard for me to believe sometimes because I know it's incredible. as Tristram as Tristram would know, we're, we're often the most educated people in every room because we keep going back and getting more and more degrees. So <laughs> the doors will open for us. So oftentimes, I always say the most the the, the smartest people I know have a disability because we've gone and uh, accumulated a really big hex debt and got lots and lots of degrees. But <laughs> again, the reason why again, if I look at females with disability because obviously that's um, we're at much higher rates of DV in general, us females, because men are typically the perpetrators, is that 
we can't access universities easily. We don't have the funds. We don't have the support systems, um, you know, transport, all those things. I always say the hardest part about my day is getting to work. It's not the actual work. Like mm. transport, cars, hoists, public transport, pathways, wheelchairs working, not working, all of that stuff or just trying to get on a bloody plane in a wheelchair is extraordinarily challenging, if not impossible sometimes. Do you think with the movement towards this online education, especially in tertiary, that this might change? Uh, yes and no. And at the same time, I don't want to isolate people with disabilities even more. I think we're so isolated anyway because the, the, the solution mm. is online. And I think that, you know, in general, us communities, we really have to figure out a way to start communicating, I don't know, in person again, like the old-fashioned way. Um, but, yeah, look, it, it can be a, a solution for people with disabilities. But, again, I think we have to look at other, other ways you know, our transport infrastructure should be better and better equipped because not just because of us people in wheelchairs, us cool, us cool kids in chairs, it's, the whole population is ageing. Everyone's got some kind of ailment at some time in their life. Nobody gets through life without having, I don't know, a sore foot or a sore ankle. You've got prams. You've got all these people using variety of different ways to get around so we should be looking at a way to make our society our community more accessible to everyone because it just makes sense yeah we've actually um you and me kind of taught um people how to become social uh, support workers um we met university of queensland many many years ago and 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 um taught the new generation how important is that to sort of for us to be teaching those people about disability and and what the norms and perceptions or all that sort of stuff's like. Yeah, especially in this new era of the NDIS, we've got to always be mindful too, don't forget, I guess, that not everyone in Australia with a disability will have an NDIS package or want one. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's really, um, it's a big disservice to the disability community to always associate us with funding or needing support workers. And this is another thing, getting back to domestic and family violence, I call it the carer myth. So, in general, the domestic and family violence service sector, and that includes police, health, you know, DB Connect, Lifeline, all of those sort of providers, they often believe, because I guess the community believe, that we all need carers or support workers to live and without them we wouldn't be able to live. So what do I mean by that? I mean that people really do believe that most of us need 24-7 care which, as you know, Tristram is quite rare to get 24-7 care or, or, or want it. I couldn't think of anything Absolutely. worse than having, no offence, <laughs> support workers in my life 24 hours a day. I love you guys, but, um, yeah, no, I only need a few hours a day, if that. But, yeah, the problem is if people believe that about us, that's the reason why a lot of police often leave those carers in our houses that are the actual perpetrators because when they go into a DV call-out, for example, and somebody's, um, you know, the victim has a disability, oftentimes the perpetrator will say, oh, no, you know, she needs me, I'm her carer. And, of course, because people believe that about us in general, that we all need carers and, and whatever to do everything, then it's very likely that that officer, police officer or DV special social worker, et cetera, will actually leave that perpetrator in the home and we see this all the time, multiple call-outs because, you know what, I can live without my support workers. I may not be able to do a few things that day, but I can't live with violence. I can't live in a house where I'm being, you know, abused and neglected every single day. So this carer myth and this idea that support workers are in 
in our lives 24-7, we have to absolutely bust. But, yeah, mm. getting back to that question about support workers, I only ever <laughs> needed support workers when I had a kid, you know, three and a half years ago. I never had a support worker until I had a child. And I'm a, I'm a woman in a wheelchair with a muscle wasting disease. I've got, I use an electric wheelchair. So it would be easy to think that I would need a lot of support, but I only needed support, mm-hmm. funnily enough, uh, when I became pregnant and I became single. So it wasn't just a disability thing. It was a lifestyle thing as well. So I've spent the last three and a half years working with support workers. And to be honest, Tristram, all that stuff I said years ago <laughs> – I'll have to take back because you really do learn. I was lying. I was talking through my butt because I didn't have any idea what it was like to have support workers until now that I do have them. And in every single week I'm learning more and more because it's a real, it is such an invasion on your life, but also you need it. So I can tell you now support workers can really enhance people with disabilities' lives if they know how to make sure that, we, that they can sort of be in the background and I guess help us live that really good, purposeful life. But yeah, it, it's been a really interesting three and a half years. So just um, back on the DV and the perpetrators, I mean, you mentioned that the carers sometimes are the perpetrators. Where else is this abuse coming from? Yeah, it's, again, it's really hard to um, to quantify because unfortunately we, uh, people with disabilities, are often left out of all data. And this is actually a basic this is actually, I call this abuse in itself, a systems abuse. We have been left out of data sets and we still are left out of data sets all the time. So when it comes to domestic and family violence, trying to quantify it, it hasn't been an easy task. Queensland Police um, only just started um, identifying disability in their DV forms, I think, last year. But when you speak to them directly, like I've been lucky enough to do, they will tell you that they are they are inundated with domestic and family violence call-outs in general. That's their number one call-out now. That's all they do all day, every day. But so many of those people have disabilities, but they haven't been identified in the data or on the forms. You know, we don't even get identified properly in education and hospitals. So it unfortunately, this is this is the reality we're living in. Now people are recognizing that we should be included in all data sets because as a person that works for the government, guess what, you can't get any funding or support unless you've got data and we're kind of invisible and that to me just reflects on unfortunately how society sometimes views us and my big thing is trying to get employment for people with disabilities in general and so we're really trying, the state government here in Queensland, we're really trying to get corporates in the community to start looking at how many people with disabilities they already employ, getting a stat around that and hopefully then getting them to increase it. And it's also important to note that it's not just physical abuse, it's not just systems abuse, there's all types of abuse going on. Um, What are some of the other types of abuse that people face? Uh, Specifically with a disability, it's pretty much very similar to... um, any woman facing and experiencing domestic and family violence. And what we've all learnt from um, Henna's murder and her baby's murders um, is that oftentimes the red flags, and I guess DV practitioners like myself all understand this really well because I don't want to minimise at all Henna's um, Henna and a baby's murders because to us, unfortunately, that's business as usual, the, the red flags leading up to that murder. So, again, physical abuse is often not what we consider a really big red flag for DV-related homicide, if you can believe that. So, 
most of the time when we're looking at DV-related homicides, so death review boards, going through data, looking forensically at the lead-up to a homicide, it is actually coercive control, um, stalking, financial abuse, and um, kidnapping of the children. So those are really big factors when it comes to and, and alarming red flags when it comes to DV-related homicide. And with disability, some of the DV-related, DV uh, the disability-related DV is um, not charging wheelchairs or any mobility equipment. So as you can imagine, Tristram, I'm not sure how you charge your chair, but I'm guessing somebody may help you and somebody also helps me charge my chair. So Absolutely. if you wanted to really really uh, stuff up our days would be to make sure we don't have a battery, um, which I do often because I'm just absent, <laughs> absent-minded professor forget to charge my wheelchair <laughs> all the time. Um, so I'm abusing myself <laughs> regularly. Um, so, yeah, that's a disability-related DV is that people and the perpetrator won't charge the person's wheelchair and mobility equipment. They will um, not give them the medications. They won't take them to rehabilitation appointments. And we're also seeing um, a lot of perpetrators um, of specifically women with disabilities uh, filling out their forms for them for like NDIS packages and taking over their packages um, and, of course, uh, Centrelink payments, etc. So that's a real specific DV um uh, offence for somebody with a disability. It's pretty disgusting, isn't it, when you think about it? Oh, absolutely. It's terrible. It's and a lot of it's yeah. the financial abuse there, the social abuse you mentioned, and the emotional abuse. Is there a lot of sexual abuse in this um, field as well? People with an intellectual disability and a cognitive disability are at alarmingly higher rates of sexual abuse. There have been some stats that's, that suggest that 90% of women with wow. intellectual disability have been sexually assaulted. Now, that's a stat that is hard to quantify and actually back up. Mm. But let's just say this, they're at a really, really high rate. I know this because I've been a clinician, you know, in this field. I sit on the Sexual Violence Roundtable um, here in Queensland and I'm very linked in with a lot of services and it's at such a high rate. And one of the contributing factors to that happening is because our legal system deems anybody with an intellectual disability or cognitive impairment of any description, even mental health, um, can be also um, chucked into that bag as being an unreliable witness. So wow. if you're already stamped by the legal system and the justice system as being an unreliable witness, then as you can imagine for the police and prosecutors and barristers and lawyers that take on the cases, which are very few and far between, mm. they don't want to take them on because they know they're not going to win. They know, they know it's not going to get through the courts. So as you can imagine, this particular law is something that I'm very passionate about changing mm. because as I say, I've never met anyone with a disability I can't communicate with. I haven't met a human I can't communicate with. And anybody, any human knows when they're being raped and every single human being knows when they're being abused. So that is not something that you need a good IQ, a high IQ for. You don't have to be good at maths and English to know that you've been raped. And also if we consider that, you know, children can now be seen as reliable witnesses with the right supports and services and we must start seeing uh, people with an intellectual disability in the same way. If they've got the right supports and services, you can communicate with them 
Absolutely. You just have to make sure they're linked with what I would love to see as communication partners or interpreters, just like we do with um, anyone who can't speak English. We make sure they've got interpreters through the entire court uh, proceedings. And this happens all the way through. This happens with police as well. You know, when somebody with an intellectual disability presents, when they do present, we have a right, those people have a right to have good representation and someone help them communicate, not their carers, not their support workers, but a third party. Um, so in terms of people, if, if they are facing these types of abuse, um, what can they do? Who can they turn to? Um, what organisations are out there to assist them? Yeah, good question. <laughs> not, not enough. Um, unfortunately, well, fortunately and unfortunately, because I always think, you know, us people with disabilities, we have to access mainstream services, right? So that's just the way of life. But oftentimes people think there's like this utopia, magical unicorn disability land that we go to for everything. <laughs> and now that the NDIA is obviously up and running, they really do think that that place does everything. And as we know, Tristram, that is not the case. We, When we are sick, we go to the GP we go to the hospital and when we are abused or experiencing violence, then we obviously will go to the police and also hopefully um, mainstream domestic and family violence services. Some uh, mainstream DFE services like 1-800-RESPECT, they have developed an app for people with intellectual disabilities. It's a sunny app. Um, that you can obviously download through at the app store and you can actually when you do call them or you can even go online they've got um, a way for people that have communication problems to go online and do it chat online or however they normally communicate but you can ask for support specific to your needs and abilities um, but I would highly recommend anyone with a disability that is experiencing domestic and family violence to obviously always reach out to the police, mainstream providers um, and someone trusted in their circle. But in terms of in Queensland, we've got DV Connect and they're doing a lot of work actually in making sure that they support people with disabilities better moving forward. Lifeline have um, started to do a national program um, to educate all DFE um, frontline workers and disability workers on domestic and family violence and disability. It was written by Sue Salthouse, who's a legend, um, she happens to use a wheelchair as well. So she's um, obviously somebody with lived experience of domestic and family violence. But we always have to be mindful, though, that anyone that's escaping a domestic and family violence situation, and, and I certainly don't want to um, encourage people to do this, but we have to be mindful that leaving a relationship is the riskiest time for a woman. It is fraught with danger and it's very risky in terms of uh, homicide, but also I really want the community to understand to leave. It takes on average seven times for a woman to leave a domestic and family violence situation. So it's not a quick fix. It's a really long process because oftentimes they'll lose their jobs, their identity, their house, the children will have to move to uh, school, they'll have no money at all because obviously financial abuse and the, and the perpetrator usually takes most of their income and controls it. So we have to remember this is a really long process. This can be, you know, anywhere from a year to 10 years to 20 year process to get women safely back into a really, you know, a better life, but also a life that they can actually afford to, to live. 
Um, Kanye, as you know, this podcast is called Grow Bold with Disability. Um, can you tell us what living a bold life is to you? Oh, <laughs> living a bold <laughs> life. Uh, I don't really have a choice. I don't know. I think that I feel like I've always been, and I, I certainly wouldn't want the generation below me and below me again now I'm bloody in my 40s, the generations below me. I hope that um, the new generations of, of kids and teenagers with disabilities don't feel like I've felt my whole life and that is I have to be the smartest, boldest, funnest, funniest, hottest <laughs> person to get anywhere in life with a disability because that's what I've felt my whole life. You know, I guess I've always been so bold and so big because I've always been so frightened that I wouldn't have a job and I wouldn't be able to pay the bills and I wouldn't be given chances. I guess because, you know, 41 years of living with a disability, I still fight for basics. I wish I didn't have to say that. I wish I didn't have to say that I fight to get on a plane every week because I'm in a wheelchair, literally. Sometimes I don't win. Sometimes I'm left behind so I can't go and do my work or go on a holiday or you know, every other week my wheelchair is broken by an airline, um, you know, fight to access buildings, all of those things. I wish that, I hope that this next generation can just live a mediocre, <laughs> uh, normal life and, and, they don't, and they don't feel like I've felt my whole life, which is mm. having to be uh, so outrageously bold and, and, and amazing to get anywhere. But to me a bold life is actually living and leading a normal life, being a great mum, a good friend, and turning the fight switch off, mate. No more fighting for um, the basics and just getting back to fighting for, for people with disabilities rights and the right to live free from violence. That's what I'd like to do. Absolutely perfect. Carney, thank you so much for joining us today on Grow Bowl with Disability, brought to you by Ferros Care. And our listeners can find out much more about Carney and her great work within the disability sector in the links provided in today's episode show notes. Carney, again, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. Thanks, Carney. Thank you for listening. And if you have enjoyed today's episode, then make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Grow Bold with Disability. And if you like what you heard, then please take a few moments to pop over to iTunes and give our podcast a quick rating so we can continue these conversations and encourage people to grow bold. This podcast is brought to you by Ferros Care, an NDIS partner delivering local area coordination services in Queensland, South Australia and the Australian Capital Territory. Ferros Care is a people care organisation committed to helping people live bolder lives. We call it Growing Bold and for over 25 years, Ferris has been making it real for both older Australians and those living with disability. To find out more, head to ferroscare.com.au.